So we come to the third epistle of Jesus. We've been talking about the epistles of Jesus, the seven epistles of Jesus in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. This morning's title is Teaching Jesus Hates. And the theme of our sermon this morning is false teaching. But let's first review the first two epistles of Jesus. The first epistle is the one to the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus. False teaching wasn't their problem. Far from it. In fact, they were commended how, quote, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. And then near the end of the letter, Jesus commands them again, because they hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. In fact, that's where the title of the sermon comes from, Teaching Jesus Hates. Tolerance of false teaching in the church at Ephesus was not a problem. Their problem was that they had lost their love for Jesus, which they had had at first The second letter was to Smyrna. False teaching wasn't their problem either. In fact, apparently, because they had stood firm on the truth of Christ, they were experiencing intense persecution and were about to experience even more, even to the point of death. Jesus only urges them not to be afraid. So this morning we come to the third epistle to the church in Pergamum. Let's read it together. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, as I said, I'm not going through verse by verse and trying to explain everything. We're picking a theme from each letter. This letter to Pergamum and the next one to Thyatira contain the theme of false teaching. So we're going to talk about that theme today in general. And then next week, we're going to focus on one aspect of that theme, the sexual immorality. So what's going on here in this letter? I said last week 
that the three middle letters of the seven, numbers three, four, and five, were all a mixture of commendation and correction. And so Jesus begins this letter by commending the church of Pergamum for keeping the faith in a city so evil that he refers to it as the place where Satan's throne is and the place where Satan dwells. And it is also a place where one of their own, a man named Antipas, who tradition says was their pastor, had already been martyred. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, verse 13. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So here we have another church beset by persecution, like Smyrna. And also like Smyrna, they had refused to deny the faith, even in the face of pressure. So what were they doing that was so wrong? Well, they were tolerating some people in the church who were teaching bad stuff. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also some of you, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So what were these false teachings? Well, the first thing to say about them is that we don't know for sure, but we have a pretty good idea. The second thing to say is that most Bible scholars agree that the false teachings mentioned in these two letters, Pergamum, Thyatira, and in Ephesus, were very similar to one another. The way we know this is because they're all advocating some participation in idolatry and sexual immorality. If you go to the letter of Thyatira, the next one, Jesus rebukes that church for tolerating that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrifice to idols. The same thing as in our passage in Revelation 2, 14 and 15. They're, you know, except it's here it's Balaam that's cited instead of Jezebel, but still it's that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. And when it goes on in verse 15 to say, so also some of you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, the Greek there is strange and it seems to be linking the problem of the Nicolaitan teaching with the problem of the teaching of Balaam. So again, the conclusion is that they're all basically the same thing. Well, if they're all basically the same thing, why are there different words used to refer to it? Well, let me try to explain that. Some things the church believes in every generation are offensive to the world in which it lives. This pressure from the society sometimes tempts people in the church who live in the midst of that society to find ways to adjust 
their teaching to avoid the disfavor and the other negative consequences of offending non-believers in the society around them. However, often there isn't an obvious way to change the truth of God. And so you end up with different people coming up with different ideas of how they might adjust the truth to justify cooperating with the world. And so you end up with different groups, different philosophies, but in the end they are all accomplishing basically the same thing. And that's the kind of thing which could explain why several groups could all be teaching basically the same thing. Each name describes a group who teaches one way where you could justify getting along or going along with the religious and social requirements of that pagan society in which they lived. So what are these false teachings all about? Well, last week we talked about how this society was very religious. These cities had a large number of trade guilds. Some of them had a guild for almost every trade. And most people involved in any economic activity belonged to one of these guilds. And since all the guilds had their own patron deity, Christian guild members would be expected to pay homage to pagan gods at their official guild meetings, which were usually festive occasions often accompanied by ritual immorality. Non-participation in these activities would lead to economic ostracism or worse. And so there was a tremendous pressure, especially in Pergamum, which was such an evil place that Jesus himself calls it where the the throne of Satan is. Now the second fact. The pagan religion here involved two main activities. First of all, it involved participation in a feast, eating meat, right after it had been sacrificed to an idol. The second activity involved sexual engagement with temple prostitutes as part of the worship. This is why Jesus cites the story of Balaam and Balak from the book of Numbers, who, quote, put a stumbling block before God's people so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. If someone refused to engage in these activities, there were severe consequences. Probably the poverty and intense persecution that we saw the believers in Smyrna were experiencing resulted from their refusal to participate in these activities. And so it doesn't surprise us to find out that Christians were trying to come up with ways to rationalize sneaking down to the pagan temple to engage in these activities so that they wouldn't be punished financially or otherwise. Now, you might think 
it unbelievable that a Christian would convince himself that it's okay to go down to the idol temple and commit these kinds of acts. But I would remind you that Christians today, in a lot, a lot of Christians today, were who believe and there are a lot of Christians today who believe and participate in some seemingly ridiculous things because they are conforming to a society which punishes people for not going along with their ideas and behaviors. Now, how did the false teachers of Pergamum justify these activities? Well, we don't know that. There's a number of possibilities that people have come up with. And I could go through seven or eight of them if you like, but I'm just going to mention one so you get a taste. Perhaps they convinced themselves that involvement with idolatry in this fashion was okay as long as they weren't really worshiping in their hearts and didn't actually believe in the false gods while they were doing this. But whatever their justification, the point is, that their false teaching was giving permission to people in the church to participate in pagan idol worship activities. So, there are two things now that I really want you to take home from all of this. The first one is about the church. In verse 16, the church of Pergamum is called to repent. Were they being asked to repent of? They're not being asked to repent of believing false teaching. They're not being asked to repent of promoting false teaching. They're being called to repent of tolerating those who taught falsely, of harboring false teachers. This says something about the relationship that we are to have with others in the church. We are responsible for one another. We are accountable to one another. We are accountable for one another. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul rebukes the church of Corinth for tolerating a man who is committing sexual immorality. And he's outraged at their attitude. He says, you're acting arrogant and boastful. Shouldn't you be mourning instead? Remove this man from among you. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, how many American Christians do you think feel that sense of responsibility for the things going on in their church? How many church people would say, that's not my business? Maybe it's the leader's business, but certainly not my business. We can't even get Christians to believe in church membership. But, you know, it's much more than church membership we're being called to. It's church ownership. You don't just join a church, you own a church. Have you noticed that Jesus' instructions in Matthew 18 about confronting people in sin... They don't begin with the church leaders. 
They begin with one person going to another person one-on-one and confronting that person. And then if the one-on-one interaction proves ineffective, Jesus says to take one or two others and approach the person. And then only if that proves ineffective does he instruct you to take it to the church. That's the final step. You don't just go to church. You are an integral part of a church. A member of the body. That's where church membership came from. And a member of the body like a hand or an ear or an eye or a foot. A real part of the body. The second thing I'd like you to take home from this is about false teaching. The Bible makes it clear that there are many kinds of false teachings. You can take something that's peripheral and put it in the center of Christian truth and you have false teaching. Or you can throw out a part of the truth, usually something unpopular like the doctrine of hell. That's false teaching. You can forbid something that the Bible allows, as we see in 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 7, 1 to 5. The forbidding of marriage and certain foods are condemned there. But this false teaching in this, it's addressed in this letter, is the false teaching of allowing something the Bible forbids. These letters show us that often the false teaching which the church must combat is often a result of the pressure of the society around it. But every false teaching, in one way or another, is a distortion, is a twisting of who Jesus is or what he did. These false teachers had painted a picture of a Jesus who winks at idolatry, who winks at sexual immorality, and that is not the true Jesus. Now, Jesus is a very loving and gracious Savior. He is even called the friend of sinners. However, Jesus is never and in no way a friend of sin. And woe to anyone who portrays him as such. And here I want to remind you of Revelation 2.6, the teaching that Jesus hates. There is teaching that Jesus hates. That's strong language. But Jesus himself said this, remember, which I also hate. And if Jesus hates it, we ought to hate it too. He's commending them for hating this, this teaching, which I also hate. He's commending them because they have the same opinion he does, and we ought to have the same opinion he does. And if we don't, then we just don't get it. We're out of step with Jesus. Now, some people might be thinking in all this, Jesus seems like he's the king of persnickety. Is he being a little picky? I mean, we'd never say this, 
but is he being a little picky here, making such an issue about these things? We might think that close is good enough, but a counterfeit dollar is close to the real thing, but it's not the real thing. Satan, you see, is a deceiver and a counterfeiter. Jesus just wants us to have the real thing and not a counterfeit. He wants us to know him, not know an imposter or someone who's claiming to be him. He wants us to know the real lion, not a donkey that dresses up like the real lion. What an arrogant thing it is to think that we can improve on Jesus. What an insult to try to change him. We've talked before about how God's law is a description of Jesus and how God's commands are just him telling us to be like Jesus. What if Moses after he'd been given the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, had said to God, well, thanks for the Ten Commandments, Lord, but I wonder if I could just make a couple of minor adjustments to the Second and the Seventh Commandments. That's exactly what these people were doing in the church at Pergamum. How do you think God would have responded? Do you think he would have been open-minded? and taken Moses' suggestion into consideration? Ridiculous. Changing the law, you see, changes our picture of Jesus. And it's impossible to improve on the true Jesus. The picture God gives us of him in his word is so wonderful, and so powerful, and so beautiful, that to tarnish it is scandalous. Now, we all get things wrong. And we're all wrong about our understanding of God in one way or another. And we're not saved by our correct doctrine. But there's a difference between a counterfeit dollar bill and a well-used dollar bill, which is faded and folded and maybe even torn or written on. I think it's possible to humbly and sincerely study God's word out of love for him and a desire to listen to him and come to a wrong conclusion about what, what it teaches on a given subject. You know, when Jesus began his ministry, there was an, an establishment in Judaism, the Pharisees, and there was an enormous amount of over, overlap between the things that the Pharisees believed and promoted and what Jesus believed and promoted. Several times when asked, Jesus even said that the Pharisees were right about this or about that. And yet Jesus did not affirm them at all. He consistently rebuked them and told people they were in error. He condemned them as false teachers, saying, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
and elsewhere, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. That's from Mark 7. Jesus wasn't impressed by the fact that their teaching on a lot of subjects was correct. He made it clear that he was against them because of their false teaching. And this is the same attitude towards false teaching that we find in all of the epistles written by the apostles. There's a mind-boggling proliferation of false teaching in the world today in the name of Christ. And it's important that we have the right attitude about it. You certainly find people who assume that everyone who doesn't agree with them on everything is a false teacher. And I'm not talking about that at all. But neither am I talking about assuming that everyone who says they believe in Jesus is necessarily a sincere teacher of the truth. Years ago, I was talking to a local pastor. We had just had a pastor's meeting, and um, he had called it, and I had gone because I knew him, and he's calling a pastor's you know, meeting for prayer. So I came, and we had this time of prayer and meeting, and afterwards I was talking to him and saying, you know, some of those guys aren't where we are theologically at all. And uh, he said, you know, somewhat... I've talked to these guys and what they preach on Sunday mornings may be rank heresy straight from the pit of hell. But, you know, I really do believe they love Jesus in their hearts. Now, find that attitude towards false teaching in the Bible. It's not in there. That's never the attitude towards false teaching. You certainly don't see it in this letter, do you? It's a serious thing. Because Jesus is a serious thing. And we can't let anyone twist and distort him. Lest we lose him altogether. Now we come to the Lord's table. Where each week... We reenact the atoning death of our Lord. You know, someone, something died in order for us to be able to eat this. And I'm not talking about Jesus. But there was wheat that died and there was grapes that died so that we might eat. And this is there, you see, a picture of how we receive life from the death of another. And so it is that the death of Christ is our life. And we, we come to this and we remind ourselves of our precious Jesus who came in the form of a man, even though he was God. And he gave his life upon the cross And he bore on his own shoulders the punishment for our sins that we deserved so that we might be set free. And then we reenact also our receiving this and our owning it 
by taking it and putting it into us and letting it give us strength in life. Let us pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we are very blessed people. People that you have loved. People that you have given your son to. And we receive now these tokens, these elements, these pictures of Jesus with gratitude. And pray that as we receive them, we'll be receiving him as well in our hearts. And celebrating all that he is and all that he has done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.